happy Father's Day to our fathers here. Did everybody get the special health treat we had? Um, in the, uh, we, we couldn't think of another way to make it less nutritious. Uh, we tried, uh, but it's not possible to make those less nutritious than they are. Hey, I don't know, uh, that whole dad thing, I don't know if you found this to be true or not. It just never ends. Uh, I was in a store last week going down an aisle. I was by myself. Nope, nobody was with me. I was by myself. And I'm walking down the aisle, and someone yells, Dad. So I stop and turn around to see who it is that wants me uh, in that store. Uh, and it was nobody, by the way. Uh, so uh, but I don't know if that's happened to you or not. Did you know that there are 152 million males in the United States, and 70, a little over 70 million of them are dads? So if that is you, would you raise your hand? You're a dad. Raise your hand. All right. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Did you know that over 87 million cards are sent each year on Father's Day? Do you know what the top card sending day is? Christmas. <laughs> Christmas. Still Christmas. So Jesus still wins. All right. So that's good. Uh, you know what the second day is? Not Mother's Day. Good night. <laughs> yes. Valentine's Day. Do you know what the third day is? Mother's Day. And then do you know what the fourth day is? It's us. All right. There we go. Uh, so we're only losing to Jesus, love, and moms. All right. So that's good. That's good stuff. Here, listen. Did you know that fewer Americans are celebrating Father's Day? Do you know why that is? It's because more kids are growing up without dads. So fathers in the room, thank you for being here and thank you for being there for your kids. It's huge. Here's why. When fathers are involved in their child's education, the children perform better in school, learn more, and exhibit healthier behavior. And I think it's important that we understand that. Let me give you one more. Wrestling and roughhousing with a father helps shape a child's brain to help them manage emotion and develop a balance between thinking and physical action. Listen, evidently, dads, there are lessons to be learned that our children are taught actually best by us. Uh, both bad and good, I'm sure, and I want to make sure that we acknowledge that today, because we know that today is a difficult day. Adam has referred to that uh, as a difficult day for some, right? Uh, and maybe, maybe for you it's difficult because uh, when you were growing up, your dad wasn't there. He, he just was absent. Or maybe worse, he was there. And there are painful memories because he was there. And, I'm, and I hate that. I'm sorry if that, if that has made Father's Day difficult for you. But thank you for being with us, even though today can be difficult. You know, for some of us, it's a difficult day because uh, you thought you'd be a dad by now. And it's just not been in the cards yet. Uh, or maybe it's because you miss your dad. Your dad's no longer with us, and so you miss him. And it just makes today just kind of a, a sad reminder Again, thank you for being with us. And I hope even if it is difficult that we can celebrate the dads who are in the room, right, who are, or who are watching online. Thanks for joining us online if you're there. But for the dads who want to be the fathers that God has called each of us dads to be. And so if that's you, thank you for being here. And I appreciate what Umberto Echo said on your notes. Uh, it's right here on your handout at the top. I believe that what we become depends on what our fathers teach us at odd moments. When they aren't trying to, trying to actually teach us, we are formed by little scraps of wisdom. And sometimes, dads, we get to teach from our successes 
At other times, we teach from our failures, right? And this morning, we're going to take a look at a time in the life of Joshua and the leaders of Israel uh, that they made a huge mistake with a bad decision. Now, in fairness, as we look at this, they were totally set up uh, on this one, so we need to keep that in mind. But they also skipped a step in their decision-making process that we need to make sure that we model in our own lives for those who are coming uh, behind us. So if you have your Bible with you, we are in Joshua chapters 9 uh, and 10, and so I hope you'll join us there. But uh, let me catch you up. Everyone will catch up while you're looking for that, or if you're on the Bible app, you can find our verses there this morning. We've been talking about the children of Israel. Moses has died. Joshua is now their leader, and they, uh, they're moving in to take possession of the promised land. We talked about what that means to move into the promises that God has for our life. The first uh, city they come across is Jericho. We stopped and looked at some lessons from that battle. Then last week, we looked at what happened when they got to the city of Ai, a much smaller city, and yet they were defeated by them initially. And we looked at why that happened and what we can learn from that. And if you missed any of that, hope you'll check them out at the website uh, so that you can catch up with all of this. But today, they get deceived. They are fooled bamboozled in the Bible. God had said the whole land was to be theirs, but they needed to destroy all of the pagans that were living in the land and reclaim it for themselves. So even before they go into the land, God tells them this. Back in Exodus chapter 23, he says, I will establish your borders from the Red Sea to the Mediterranean Sea and from the desert to the Euphrates River. I will give into your hands the people who live in the land and you will drive them out before you. So don't make a covenant with them or with any of their gods. Don't let them live in your land or they will cause you to sin against me because the worship of their gods will certainly be a snare uh, to you. So in a word, God says they've got to go. So in Joshua chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, if you have your Bibles open after the Israelites defeated Jericho and Ai, the other kings in the area, get on a conference call really quick. And verse 2, it says most of them decided that the only way to stop Israel was to join forces and to fight them. There was one tribe, however, the Gibeonites, who rationalized that since Jerusalem, since the Israelites took Jericho without even firing a shot, and then last week how they ambushed, they ended up ambushing and destroying the city of Ai, the Gibeonites knew we do not stand a chance against these guys. And even if they wondered about surrendering. Maybe if we just surrender to them, it'll go okay. They already know that Israel's goal is to eliminate everyone in the land. So they come up with an alternative strategy. Check it out, verse 3. However, when the people of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai, they resorted to a ruse, and this was the ruse. They went as a delegation whose donkeys were loaded with worn-out sacks and old wineskins uh, that were cracked and mended, and they put worn and patched sandals on their feet and wore old clothes, and all of their bread and their food supply was dry and moldy. And then they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal and said to him and to the Israelites, We have come from a distant country would you make a treaty with us? In reality, they traveled about 15 to 20 miles, and they claimed they were from a faraway country. And then they began to butter them up. Verse 9 says that they'd heard how famous the God of the Israelites was. They had heard what he'd done in Egypt. They'd heard what he'd done in the wilderness. And in verse 12, they remind them, look at our bread. It was warm when we left. Now it's all it's stale and moldy. And it did look like 
they had come a long way. And I don't know, but I wonder if maybe that as the Israelite leaders, Joshua gets together with the leaders and they begin to talk a little bit, if some of their thoughts might have gone like this. And we don't know because it's not recorded, but I wonder, you know, if they're saying, but do you know how many people around here hate us? I mean, they hate us. Uh, it, would, it wouldn't hurt to have some friends here, right? And they live so far away. They're so far away. That bread is nasty. What is it? What's the big deal if we make this treaty with them? And they probably think that we want to take over the world, and so they want to be protected, and, 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 right? We will probably never venture to where they live anyway. I just don't see any harm in making this agreement with them. And the fact was, it wasn't just then that people were deceptive. People can be uh, deceptive. People can be pretty deceptive today. I don't know if you've heard about the principal who received a phone call. The voice said, (coughs) Thomas Bradley will not be in school today. And the principal was kind of suspicious of the voice. And he said, may I ask who's speaking? And the voice said, my father. Uh, I don't know, you know, do you ever read that and go, did that, does that kind of thing really happen? Several years ago, our son Josh was having difficulty with the IRS, and they just could not connect time-wise. So I decided I would help out. Uh, I decided that if I called them, uh, I, I would let them believe it was him. And my thinking was, uh, number one, they couldn't ask a whole lot of questions that I probably did not know the answers to. And I reasoned within myself that as long as I didn't say that I am Joshua Tuttle, I wasn't lying if I just let them believe that I was. I, I'm not saying that was right thinking. I, actually, I'm telling you that was wrong thinking. Uh, but at that moment, that's what I was doing, and, uh, and it was going pretty well until they asked point blank, is this Joshua Tuttle? And I just stopped, and I shook my, I remember I shook my head, and I looked at the ceiling, and I said, no, I'm his dad. I'm trying to help. And they said, your voice is a little deep for a young man. So I was caught and offended, all in the same, you know, conversation with the IRS. I don't know if you've ever been deceived. A man claims to be passing through town on his way to his grandmother's funeral. Children are sick, cars out of gas, uh, and they need money to get there. So you give him $20, you say, I'm really sorry, it's not more. A few days later, you find out he actually lives in town. Kids weren't sick. There is no grandma in Tennessee. Uh, How do you feel about that? How do you do when a salesman says the car was owned by a little old lady who only drove it to church on Sundays? But after you buy it, you find out it's been wrecked twice, and she drove it to the mechanic way more than she ever drove it to church. Listen there, salesmen without companies, companies without products, checks without money, there are a lot of dishonest people in the world. I found out recently that writing letters of recommendation can be hazardous. I didn't know if you know this or not. I didn't. If you tell the truth, you could get sued uh, if the contents are negative. So Robert Thornton, professor, professor at Lehigh University, has a collection of virtually, virtually litigation-proof phrases called uh, the lexicon of intentionally ambiguous recommendations or liar, right? So here are some of his recommendations. Feel free to use these if you need to. I'm pleased to say this candidate is a former colleague of mine. In my opinion, you'll be very fortunate to get this person to work for you, right? I can assure you that no person would be better for the no person would be better for the job. I enthusiastically recommend this candidate with no qualifications whatsoever. 
I would urge you to waste no time in making this candidate an offer of an employment, of employment. And if you hire this person to work for you, I'm sure you'll come to feel about him exactly the way I do. Listen, there's a lot of deception in the world, and we should be concerned. Of all places, we need to be the place of integrity, to teach integrity. The Israelites were tricked. And listen, it wasn't their intent to disobey what God had told them. They simply let their guard down. See if you can pick out where they made their mistake. In verse 14, the Israelites sampled their provisions but did not inquire of the Lord. They checked out their story by seeing how moldy the bread was. And then they looked at their clothes and they said, well, they kind of look like they've been traveling a long way. And then they smelled them and said they kind of smell like they haven't had a bath in a long time. They appear to be telling the truth. So they thought they had done everything possible to make sure. And maybe this is your next step in your faith walk with Jesus. But their primary failure was they didn't go to God for guidance. In this decision, this huge decision, which, which impacted a whole country of people, they did not go to God for guidance. Joshua and the other leaders make a treaty. They did the nice, compassionate, kind uh, seemingly wise thing, but they didn't talk to God about it, which begs this question, by the way, how do we make important decisions today? When it comes to making a big decision, how do you do that uh, today when, when you're thinking through those things? Do you pray? Do we search scriptures for guidance on this? Do we evaluate carefully our own thoughts and our own feelings? Do we seek wise counsel from Christian friends? right? Or do we make decisions without consulting God? When I was growing up, my preacher told me that when you're making a decision, I actually taught a class, when you're making decisions, you need to consider the three C's, which were really good. I made it better by adding a fourth one. So uh, this might be your next step in your faith with a decision that you're in the middle of considering right now. So first one is this. When you're making a decision, do you consider the commandments of God, right? In other words, if he says yes, it's okay to do it. If he says no, it's not okay to do it. If he says no, you stop. If he says yes, then you can proceed. The question is, what has God said? James 1.22, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. It is not merely enough to listen to an incredible message on a Sunday morning. You have to do what's said, right? What does God say about praying? God says pray continually. This is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Does God want you to talk to him and listen to him and be with him in prayer? There were people in the room a moment ago. Listen, does, I'm, I'm trying to keep this right in front of you so the answer is obvious. Does God want you to spend time with him in prayer? Yes. Talking to him, listening to him, gathering his wisdom. Yes. So what does he say about serving? Peter would write this. You should use whatever gift you have received to serve others. Does God say he wants us to serve others? Yes. As a matter of fact, he has given you a gift, but that gift isn't for you. It's for those around you, and he's given me a gift, but it's not for me. It's for those around me. And if I don't use my gift for you and you don't use your gift for us, then we are not using our gift the way God has intended it. We need to do what he says. We also need to not do what he says not to do. Colossians 3, he tells us, do not lie to each other. You see what God is telling us not to, not to do here? He's telling us to be people that others know when we say something, it's the truth. God wants his children to be known as people that when we talk, nobody has to say, 
gosh, I wonder if they're telling the truth this time or not. That's not because we reflect him. That's not what he wants for us. It's not what he wants for him either. But we're not just to tell the truth. We're to tell the truth in love. Listen, it's not about this is the truth. It's about this is the truth. We just want to help you understand the truth. Okay? And so we speak the truth in love. Did you know that God has told us in 2 Corinthians 6, do not be yoked together with unbelievers? Did you know he said that? Do you know what that means? It means don't marry someone who doesn't follow Jesus. That's what that means. Because it makes life hard. Your heart will be torn between your spouse and God. And so let me ask, how do you win that tug of war? God is saying you don't even want to be in that game. So if you're going to marry someone, marry someone who loves me like you do. That way you'll still have problems and issues and disagreements, but at least you'll agree on this thing in your life. And if I may add this, for those who are in this, the dating realm, you most likely will not marry someone you've already, you haven't dated. So if you don't date someone, you probably won't marry them. Does that make sense? So if you're not going to marry a non-Christian, may I encourage you, don't date a non-Christian. All right, do you get it? If God's word says do it, we do it. If it says don't do it, we don't do it. Okay, just making sure. Second is conscience. Second C is conscience. How does the decision that you are looking to make, does it go, how does it encounter your conscience? What's inside of you? In James chapter 4, we read, if anyone knows the good they ought to do and don't do it, it is sin for them. Is there something inside of you that is saying, this doesn't seem right? Or is there something inside of you going, yeah, I think this is okay. Your conscience may be speaking to you something that you've got planted because you've been reading God's word and spending time in prayer with him. There may be something in there that your conscience is saying to you. The third C is consideration. Is what you're deciding to do or deciding not to do, is it considerate of others? Paul would write to the church in Philippi, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of those around you. Is it considerate of the people around you? Here's the fourth. This is the one I would add is counsel. Proverbs 15 says, plans fail for the lack of counsel, but many advisors, with many advisors, they succeed. And that counsel, by the way, can come from books or podcasts or friends. But to be sure, you want godly counsel. I'm not talking about just any counsel. I'm talking about godly counsel. Because God has a way of showing us his will and giving us peace about the decisions. But we have to inquire of him if we want that peace. So let me take you back to what God had said, get back into our story. Uh, beginning of the book of Joshua, chapter 1, verses 3 to 5, he says, I will give you every place where you set your foot. I promise, Moses, I'm telling you I'll do the same thing. Your territory will extend from the desert to Lebanon, from the great river the Euphrates, all the Hittite country to the Mediterranean Sea uh, in the west, and no one will be able to stand against you all the days of your life. Just like I was with Moses, I'm going to be with you. I will never leave you, and I will never forsake you. So here's the problem. How can they destroy their enemies and inhabit the land if they've already made a, a peace treaty with them? The very ones they're supposed to get rid of, they just made this treaty of peace with them. Well, they couldn't. So they had to live with the consequences of that decision. And there were at least three. Here's the first one. I believe God was disappointed. I think God was disappointed because the promised land was supposed to be their inheritance. <laughs> and he meant for them to have it. 
and he didn't want them to be influenced by their pagan neighbors, but they'd made a deal, and he wanted them to be people of their word, so he didn't want them to break their promise. I think the people were disappointed. I think that because in Joshua chapter 9, verse 18, it says the Israelites didn't attack them because the leaders of the assembly had sworn an oath to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. And so the whole Israelite community grumbled against the leaders. They were disappointed because their leaders had made a bad decision. You've been disappointed by that before, haven't you? They were disappointed because their leaders didn't seek God. They were disappointed because they didn't get, they weren't going to get everything that God had said they would get. But they weren't going to be able to get all of that. I think third, the leaders were disappointed. Because now they're going to have to share the land. They wouldn't have complete control because of a decision they had made. Their people couldn't inhabit those cities. And when you see something that could have, should have, would have been in your grasp and you let it get away, man, that is hard to swallow. The Israelites were disappointed because they knew the Gibeon cities should have been theirs. That was God's will as well. And they had failed. And now it's too late. They're going to have to live with the consequences of their decision. And last week, we looked at the story of Achan and his deliberate decision to disobey God. It was intentional. It was deliberate, different than this week. This is a foolish mistake they've made. It's an honest mistake. It's a mistake, but it was an honest one. And God did not abandon them. Look at what happens next in chapter 9, verse 22. Then Joshua summoned the Gibeonites and said, why did you deceive us by saying we live a long way from you while actually you live near us? You're going to be under a curse. You'll never be released from service as woodcutters and water carriers for the house of my God. And honestly, I don't know about you, but if I had to choose between a bunch of dead bodies laying around and having servants to do the menial tasks that I didn't want to do anyway, I'd take the servants every time. But it wasn't my plan they were trying to follow. It was God's plan they were supposed to be following. Because God says, this will trip your relationship with me. It will mess things up between us down the line. But we need to see, even in the midst of all of this, that God has a way of cleaning up our messes and making things work out. In the very next chapter, chapter 10, if your Bible is open, the other kings find out that the Gibeonites have made a treaty with Israel. And they are not happy about it. Verses 3 and 4, the kings decide to gang up on Gibeon. So in verse 6, Gibeon sent help, because, sent for help because that, part, that was part of the treaty. It wasn't just you're not going to destroy us. It was also you won't let anyone else destroy us either. So in verse 8, the Lord said to Joshua, do not be afraid of them. I will give them into your hand. Not one of them will be able to withstand you. So when Israel marches onto the scene, verses 10 and 11, God throws the other armies into confusion. They run for their lives before Israel. God steps up on the pitcher's mound in heaven and starts throwing hailstones down on, the, on them. And the Bible tells us that more are killed by the hailstones than were by Israel's sword. So it was like a crazy day. But the problem was it was getting late. And, and there were still more enemies to deal with. I don't know if you've ever made a to-do list that you, for a day that you knew was way more than you'd ever get done in that day. That's exactly what Joshua has. So many enemies, so little time, right? And so what does God do? Yes, you, maybe you've heard of this reference, verse 12. On the day the Lord gave the Amorites over to Israel, Joshua said to the Lord in the presence of Israel, Sun, stand still over Gibeon, and you, moon, over the valley of Ijalon. So the sun stood still and the moon stopped till the nation avenged itself on its enemies as it is written in the book of Jashar. I had someone who was reading this who called me and said, hey, what is this book of Jashar? It's a book that we no longer have 
available to us. So, uh, but it's referenced a couple times in the Old Testament. So the sun stopped in the middle of the sky, delayed going down about a full day. There's never been a day like it before or since, a day when the Lord listened to a human being. Surely the Lord was fighting for Israel. God made that day twice as long so that Joshua could get everything done. And if you read on in chapter 10 and then on through the end of the book, we'll see that they just kept on winning. In fact, they kept winning all of the battles and end up taking possession of the land that God had promised them despite their failure. Despite their foolish mistake, God gave them victory. So, let me sum this up for you today. The Israelites allowed themselves to be fooled. They made a dumb decision, and God blessed them. Well, that doesn't seem to add up, does it? That's not the way we think it works with God, is it? If we make a dumb decision, is God, right? doesn't make sense, but it is encouraging. It's a reminder to us that God lets us bounce back from our failures. Actually, if I may remind you of this, it's the point of the cross. Right? God is teaching us in the Old Testament a New Testament lesson that even when we mess up, he will let us bounce back from that. He makes a way, which is the whole point of 1 John 1, 8, 9. We looked at this last week. I just want to remind you, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we will confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. This is why our time of communion is so important. Each week we come to a time of communion because it reminds us just like we, we just read in the Old Testament. Sometimes we just make stupid decisions. We don't consult God and we end up in a place we don't want to be. And when we come to the re realization that this isn't what God intended for us, when we go back to God and say, I'm the one who got me here. Please help me get out of where I don't want to be, where you don't want me to be. God says, I've already done it. It's the point of the cross. This is a time, our communion is a time to acknowledge to God that we blow it. And can I just be very clear? We don't need God to excuse our sinfulness. We need God to forgive our sinfulness. That's the point of the cross. And because of Jesus giving his life on the cross, God does that for us and gives us a second chance every time we need it. So as we prepare to take communion, why don't we go to him in prayer? God, we do pray for this moment. And we are humbled because when we look at Joshua and the Israelite leaders and the decision they made this week as we look at their life, God, we know that if a story was being written about our lives, this chapter would repeat itself over and over and over again. That there have been decisions that we have made that we look back on now and we shake our head and we roll our eyes and we wonder how in the world did we do that? Because we love you. And in moments of weakness, sometimes we deliberately choose to do the wrong in moments of ignorance, we choose to do the wrong thing. And God, our prayer is that every time we would come to our senses and come back to you and ask you for your forgiveness 
God, we are grateful for Jesus, and we're grateful for the cross. And so, Jesus, thank you for dying for us. And we pray that as we come to this moment that we would be reminded, it would allow us to think back a week and to just, just to be able to take that time to stop and recall moments in our week where, number one, we have represented you well, and moments where we've not represented you well at all. But, God, that we might be reminded that we still need your forgiveness. Thank you for calling us to be your kids. Thank you for allowing us second choices. Thank you for the cross. And we draw near to it right now. In Jesus' name.